0: I'm Rachel Ann Goodman.
1: Joe Jordan?
0: That's Joe Joe Jordan. Jordan. (laughs) Say it again.
1: Joe Jordan.
0: He's Joe Jordan. And coming up this hour, an interview with world-renowned nature photographer Franz Lanting about his recent journeys to the edges of the earth in Antarctica and Patagonia to observe the changes happening there to the ice and ecosystems. If you want to ask our guest a question, you can get into the queue early by emailing us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. As we do every day on the show, we're going to start out with a little environmental news, news of the ecosystems and planets that sustain life right here on Earth. And I guess I'm going to start out with the first item. Um, given that California has lost 90% of its original wetlands, the existing wetlands are rather crucial in the survival of the species that are harbored there, but not only that... Recent research suggests that healthy, intact coastal wetlands ecosystems such as mangrove forests, tidal marshes, and seagrass uh, actually store carbon, and they store it for hundreds of thousands of years. How about that? It's an amazing thing. It's not only important for the creatures, but it's going to be important as we put out more carbon that these ecosystems have some important function of sequestering carbon for perhaps thousands of years
1: should we do the one on the uh, ban on travel everybody's heard about this muslim ban but you might not have heard about the scientific implications thereof <clears throat> according to the huffington post thousands of professors and academics have put their names to an online petition that condemns president donald trump's executive order severely limiting immigration and travel from several com- countries The petition, uh, let's see, says, uh, well, U.S. research institutes host a significant number of researchers from the nations subjected to the upcoming restrictions. From Iran alone, more than 3,000 students have received PhDs from American universities in the past three years. Petition organizers call the executive order detrimental to the national interests of the United States of America.
0: And another interesting note on that fact is that um the head of the national science, the International Science uh, Organization that normally comes to the aAAs conference canceled. Hmm. He's like the head of the World Science Association, the big one, hmm. um canceled his trip uh, to the United States to attend the American Association of Scientists uh, because of the uncertainty uh, because he is from originally from Sudan. Just that's his country of origin. That's not where he lives now. But um, there have been a number of incidents where PhD scientists have been, um, I don't know, restricted in their travel. Even though that ban has been temporarily stayed by a judge in Washington, a federal judge put a stay on it. So we'll see what happens. But the uncertainty is already having an effect on the scientific community with many PhDs and graduate students who... um, live abroad or or from other countries, especially these seven countries, having trouble traveling for work and for academic... Institutions for which they're already enrolled.
1: Just a little side thought on that. I mean, everybody looks to the United States as the great science powerhouse. You know, well, you know what? <laughs> looks to me like we're setting ourselves up to be left in the dust by what the rest of the world is doing, and we're just going to become a little intellectual backwater here if this kind of stuff is allowed to, to stand.
0: Well, certainly part of the scientific community has prided itself on the cross-dissemination of information and ideas, the intellectual sharing of Of knowledge. Uh, The knowledge base becomes everyone's knowledge base. So uh, what will the United States do if it can't uh, cross-fertilize with other countries is a huge question. And that's why one of our other stories in a moment will be uh, scientists planning a march on Washington. Don't
1: don't take this personally. We we are, as it appears, descended literally from slime bags. What? What? (laughs) <laughs> According to Nature magazine, researchers have identified traces of what they believe is the earliest known prehistoric ancestors of humans—a microscopic bag-like sea creature, who, which lived about 540 million years ago. The this microscopic bag-like sea creature was named Sacorhithus, or Ritus?
0: Sac after the like
1: sac some, Saccharitis. Something named after the sack. That's
0: my great grandmother you're talking about. <laughs> Please be polite. <laughs>
1: um, the, uh, the name came from a sack like feature created by its elliptical body and large mouth. The species is new to science and was identified from microfossils found in China.
0: And that's really cool because they could actually reconstitute what it looked like, and it looked like a bag with a mouth. So I'm sorry, everybody. Um, You thought you were descended from really intelligent apes, but um, if you go back far enough, it's all vertebrates, not just humans. But I thought that was kind of funny, like just to humble us a little bit, we're sack-like slime slime bags. So next time someone calls you that, you say proudly, that's true. Okay, and as we mentioned, um, scientists and supporters of science uh, are planning a march on Washington. Um, This is not something you would normally read as a headline, because scientists generally are rather retiring people who spend a lot of time in the laboratory. They don't (laughs) tend to get political. But on Earth Day, April 22nd, there is a march organized. And the organizer's statement reads... (laughs) This characterization of science as a partisan issue, which has given policymakers permission to reject overwhelming evidence, is a critical and urgent matter, they say. It is time for people who support scientific research and evidence-based policies to take a public stand and be counted. Not usually a politically active bunch, this may be the first event of its kind with sister marches planned across the country.
1: Yeah, I think... um that might <clears throat> tell me when I'm going to make my annual sojourn back to where I grew up in Northern Virginia near Washington, D.C. Beautiful at that time of year in mid-April. And, uh, hey, it looks like some really important stuff going on to, you know, make a stand for truth.
0: <laughs> I don't think you have to have a Ph.D. to march. I mean, right. nor, nor will they check your credentials. <laughs> so that's a good thing.
1: Science and science supporters and reality supporters in general.
0: All right, back to you, Joe.
1: Well, let's see, oh yeah. Well, um, speaking of which, (laughs) I sort of wanted to do a word of the week, um, like I did last time, which I think was percent last time. How about the word environmentalist? You know, scientists and supporters of science and the environment. Well, you can look up the Webster's definition, but it keeps using the word environment. You know, somebody who's concerned about or cares about the environment, but then what's the environment? And, uh, well, my definition, my down-home, you know, simple down-to-earth definition is um, somebody who doesn't want to foul our nest. (laughs) How about that? Somebody who doesn't want to foul our nest. Now, that leads to the question, is anybody out there not an environmentalist? You'll find lots of people who say, oh, those damned environmentalists. But... uh, well we're all environmentalists nobody wants to foul their nest now this brings to mind a funny story from back here in santa cruz from which we're broadcasting this show back in the 70s when i first came out here from virginia as a graduate student there was this oddball fad that seemed to be happening you'd go around neighborhoods and there were all these jars of water on people's lawns and i wondered for a long long time what this was all about and uh I don't know the 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 word on the street was that people put the, those there because they don't want dogs to come and pee on their lawns cuz dogs won't pee near their water source doesn't really make sense to me. I think dogs are smart enough to not think that a jar of water on somebody's yard is their water source. But anyway, that persisted for, you know, a couple of years. And then now I don't see jars of water sitting on people's lawns anymore. But it's a funny little bit of history. Well, anyway, so we're all environmentalists, so None of us want a our nest. So, hey, that brings us together. Okay.
0: Well, that's a big relief. And finally, <laughs> another perhaps non-scientific. This is a science show, and sometimes we debunk certain things that feel like science to us, and in this case, Groundhog Day.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, Is it really true that if a groundhog comes out of his nest and uh, casts a shadow, certain things will be sure to happen in the weather? How does he have that much power, I want to know, and where does that come from, Joe?
1: Well, there's this great quote that I just ran across, the tiny print, "'Only in America do we accept weather predictions from a rodent but deny climate change evidence from scientists.'" (laughs) And uh, just to tell you about Groundhog Day, by the way, it's a cross-quarter day. It's a day midway between a solstice and an equinox. Mm -hmm. Halloween is another one, if you think about it. So there are four cross-quarter days, which, you know, cross the quarters that the solstices and equinoxes divide the calendar into. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of cool.
0: Great. Well, very thank cool. you. Thank you for those words of wisdom. Now we know more <laughs> than we did earlier about Groundhog Day. Well, it's time now for our interview segment, and we're very excited to uh, say that on the phone in just a moment, we will be speaking with Franz Lanting. He is perhaps one of the world's most revered nature photographers. He has work gracing the covers of numerous National Geographics and Audubon's. Thomas Kennedy, former directory of photographer, uh, director of photography at National Geographic, He says he has the mind of a scientist and the heart of a hunter and the eyes of a poet. He is a regular columnist for Outdoor Magazine and has been knighted in his home country, the Netherlands, for his work in conservation. When he's not traveling to the ends of the earth to capture it with his camera and bring it home for us to understand and admire, he makes his home in Santa Cruz County, where this broadcast originates. So we're very, very excited and gratified to have Franz launching with us on the telephone. Hi, Franz.
2: Hello. How are you?
0: I'm wonderful. How are you doing today?
2: Well, it's a rainy afternoon here in Bonny Doon.
0: (laughs) Hasn't hit here at the yacht uh, down by the harbor yet, but I think it's on its way because a big cold wind is blowing off the ocean. So we're going to get something soon. And um, weather must be on your mind having returned from Antarctica, not just weather. But climate, I wonder if you could tell us some stories about your voyage, what inspired it and some of the highlights. And I know that's a big question. We'll be talking about that for most of the time here, but let's just begin by where you got the idea to go there and and was this your first trip?
2: (laughs) I've been down to the Antarctic many times before, and I always learned something new. And the last two months, my wife, Christine Ekstrom, and I uh, went back to a couple of places that we knew really well, the Falkland Islands, South Georgia Island, which is somewhere between the tip of South America and the Antarctic. And we went to Antarctica itself as well. And it was interesting to see the changes. Yeah, There's definitely quite visibly, uh, the impacts of climate change. You know, places that I used to know, uh, when I would go ashore there, I would be going ashore on snow and ice, and now there. are Uh, is bare rock now of course there can be great variations between one year and the next but the uh, impacts are quite clear and that's also visible in the in the times when the penguins are breeding uh, and the way they're shifting their habitat up and down the uh, antarctic peninsula so uh, climate change is very visible down there
0: You um, studied penguins. You you photographed the emperor penguins. I remember interviewing you about that quite a while ago when you first went. So this is... uh, It's sobering to have that much of a perspective, I guess, on what it's doing to the creatures that are living there and their ability to survive.
2: Yes, and since you mentioned emperor penguins, they're totally dependent on sea ice. They never touch um, bare land with their feet. They come out of the water at the end of the Antarctic summer and then they walk towards the edge of Antarctica and they form their colonies on sea ice and they have to fledge their chicks before the sea ice melts at the end of the summer so as the sea ice begins to retreat they may be in big trouble
0: Mm. you um you dedicated your voyage, I think, or at least uh, modeled it at somewhat, hopefully not specifically exactly, off of Shackleton's expedition, yet he would have found a different climate, would he not, uh, than the one you found in your latest trip there?
2: Indeed. Uh, the famous uh, endurance expedition led by Sir Ernest Shackleton took place 100 years ago. And one of our journeys this past season was uh, was meant to go in his footsteps. We revisited some of the locations associated with the expedition, and I had actually brought uh, cameras along uh, that were exactly the same that were used 100 years ago during the expedition by the photographer Frank Hurley. I wanted to see for myself what it was like to photograph with the same equipment in the same places, and that was a very interesting experience.
0: Absolutely. I was amazed. I read the book Endurance, and I was amazed how much they documented with photographs their whole ordeal. And what an ordeal, I mean.
2: Yes, yes. And that was entirely due to the to the ingenuity of Frank Hurley, an Australian photographer who had um, state-of-the-art equipment. But after the ship sank, he was down to just one camera and four rolls of film and the rest is history, as they say, so I went down with the same camera, and also with a couple of rolls of film, and found Hurley's footsteps in a number of places, and during the show that we're going to do on February 11 at the Rio Theater, I'm going to share some of the results with people.
0: Wonderful, I can't wait to see that, it's going to be a fantastic uh, show, and you know, some of your more Amazing, beautiful. They're all amazing and beautiful. And we're showing them on our um, feed if people are watching live. There's a slideshow from your front page of your website going. And one of the photographs that's going by is of, if you look closely, penguins, but they're dwarfed by these giant blue ice um, formations that are gorgeous in their complexity.
1: Hey, Franz, hi, uh, and hi, Chris, if you're there. Um, People might be wondering where you're from because you have this interesting accent. I think I know, but maybe you'll just you can just tell us uh, <laughs> your background.
2: Yeah, I've uh, I'm originally from the Netherlands, but I uh, came to Santa Cruz many years ago uh, to do research at UC Santa Cruz, and even though I'm cha- I've changed careers Uh, I still like living here
0: some more um, stories from up there I'd love to hear um, how you get up there you know what is your vehicle of choice to get through the ice and isn't it still quite dangerous even though we imagine that it being ice-free certain parts of the year there's certainly incredibly inclement weather tell us a little bit about what you saw not just through your lens but through your eyes
2: Well, we started our journey in uh, Patagonia where we visited um, uh, some remote areas that are uh, in the process of um, becoming national parks. And that's a very interesting uh, private conservation initiative that's been spearheaded by uh, by an American couple that went down there in the 1990s, uh, Doug and Chris Tompkins. And uh, they've, they're making a huge difference down in Patagonia, in uh, wilderness areas in Chile and Argentina, uh, which will be turned over to the country's national park services so that they can be held in public trust forever and ever. Uh, so we flew down there, and then locally you get around by, uh, by vehicle, but in order to get to the falkland islands or to south georgia there's only one way to go and uh, that is by ship uh yeah south georgia is a very remote uh, part of the world yeah there is no airstrip there you cannot fly there So the only way to get there is by ship, and it takes several days from uh, the southernmost port in the world, Ushuaia, uh, to get there. And the weather is very, very, very stormy because all the storms get pushed through uh, Cape Horn. And so you're facing some rough seas, and that's also what uh, Shackleton was faced with when he had to return from Antarctica to South Georgia.
0: Yes, he did. And um, I remember them calling that the Roaring Forty. I was down in Peninsula Valdez in Argentina, and it yeah. was the, the wind just kind of never stopped blowing. Um, so did you see icebergs? When, How far out did you have to be to start seeing the big, you know, giant ship-sized and continent-sized icebergs that start to show up in some of your photographs?
2: Uh, you need to be south of South Georgia Island to get into the latitudes of the 60s. And when you're uh, getting to the peninsula, you're you're surrounded by ice. Uh, but we also went into the Weddell Sea, which is a little bit to the east of the peninsula. And half of the Weddell Sea is still frozen. But uh, because of climate change, uh, bigger and bigger stretches of open water form in summer and uh, one of the more spectacular things that we found were the remnants of uh, one of the largest icebergs to ever break off from Antarctica. Uh, scientists referred to it as B-15, and that iceberg was the size of the island of Jamaica, or a quarter of the size of the Netherlands, where I'm from originally. That iceberg's now broken apart uh, into what are still spectacularly big tabular icebergs, but uh, it's an indication of things to come.
0: If you just joined us, I'm speaking with Franz Lanting, and the program is Planet Watch with Rachel Ann Goodman and Joe Jordan, and we're so happy that Franz is joining us today talking about his expedition, not only to Antarctica, but to Patagonia.
1: And Franz, you know, you're known for beautiful and stunning photographs of uh, wildlife and nature, but... uh, as you always tell us at these big public shows you give, there's a lot more behind it than just you know pretty pictures. You're, you are a great environmentalist. I don't know if you heard our little segment just before you came on about the meaning of the word environmentalist. But, and in fact, I believe you may have been blessed as were both Rachel and I by the late great Ken Norris um, in your life. Uh, and tell us a little bit about your concerns and cares and passions about the environment. Sure, um, I'm trained as an environmental econ- e- economist. So,
2: uh, in earlier on in my academic career, I try to reconcile the, the sciences of uh, economics with the science of ecology. How can we evaluate nature in a way that uh, policymakers can incorporate uh, those considerations in their um, in their decisions? Uh, and. But since I switched to photography and speaking out on behalf of the natural world, you know, I do that more artistically, but also through presentations like the one that we are now preparing for February 11th and at the Rio Theater in Santa Cruz. So, to me, nature does not exist by itself. You know, we are... Uh, we are embedded in the womb of life, if you will. And uh, yeah, the planet is shrinking very quickly. Uh, we can get in if everywhere now, and we're also seeing everywhere the results of our collective presence on planet Earth. And I really think that the next generation is in a very critical position to see if we can steer that back towards yeah, a more sustainable existence where people and nature can can coexist together.
0: Well, we can certainly uh, pray and hope that's the case because without that, um, we don't have much of a future. So let's let's hope that the work is penetrating beyond, um, you know, pretty pictures. They are gorgeous, they are art, but they're also representatives, sort of ambassadors from these places. Many of us will not get to go. I I hope to get there all the way to Antarctica, but I may not, and many of us won't. So in a way... um, these creatures, these beautiful creatures that are so exquisite, there's no end to their complexity and beauty, are speaking to us through your lens. Do you feel that way sometimes as the, the in-between, the go-between between the civil, so-called civilized world in the cities and these creatures that you know we'll never see?
2: Yes very much so. I <laughs> I regard myself as an ambassador for uh for all these amazing communities of wild animals that um that have no voice otherwise. So I think it's really important that um photographers and filmmakers and journalists and uh and writers uh you know all uh, pass on their experiences in a way that make them accessible and relevant for people who uh, who live in other parts of the world. And I think the biggest lesson that I've learned from all these decades of you know working in remote parts of our planet is that uh, what we used to think of as uh, disconnected places beyond the horizon. Nothing's beyond the horizon anymore. We are all connected on this planet. It is round, and everything that swirls around in the water or that swirls around in the air uh, you know, travels from one continent to the other.
0: Thinking of Shackleton again, he would have never imagined that you know big icebreakers like we have now could navigate the ice Um, he had a pretty sophisticated ship but he never would have imagined the kind of impacts of a industrialized world on that part of the world back then these explorers were truly going where you know very few people from cities had ever been certainly native peoples had been for years but not uh, people from the cities
2: yeah, precisely. And uh, when I uh, went back to South Georgia this year with those old cameras, it really brought me closer to the beginnings of photography as a, uh, as a craft, because uh, that was just the starting point when uh, people could take pictures of their surroundings in a in a way that was more mobile. And when I think of all the changes since, it's quite staggering. One of the things that uh, uh, I experimented with a little bit was to see if I could find locations where Frank Hurley, Shackleton's expedition photographer, uh, photographed glaciers on South Georgia, which are all in very rapid retreat. And one of my goals in a follow-up, a follow-up expedition will be to you know, become more systematic about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, in in a month or two, I plan to go back to England and do more research in archives of the Royal Geographic Society and the Scott Polar Research Institute to find the original frames that Hurley would have exposed and then uh, do new prints and see if I can get myself in the exact same position. Uh, so there's still a lot to be done.
0: Yeah, there there was a ranger, I think, at Glacier National Park who did that. And that's when yeah. it was undisputable that these glaciers were retreating rapidly, much faster than um, natural processes would have dictated. So.
1: You know, uh, I think of scary things when I hear this conversation a bit. I mean, big time scary, like on the scale of the world and what the human race now faces that's coming at us and that we're going to have to somehow overcome. It's scary. Uh, and, but then, you know, I think about Shackleton and that I hold out as kind of the, one of the very greatest examples of heroism in the history of humanity, you know, over hope and heroics, uh, they were just in an impossible situation. And yet, you know, he got every single one of those guys back to civilization. Of course, then a whole bunch of them promptly got shot up in world war one, but, but anyway, um, You know, Apollo 13 is another example, except that one was only, you know, the better part of a week. This thing was two years long. And you must, uh, you know, following the footsteps of all that, um, that must have been pretty awesome. And a related question, just scary on a smaller scale, I was kind of wondering if you might want to share with our listeners the scariest Experience you ever had just personally with, I don't know, your expedition or your film or, or just you thought you were all going to die or what? You know, what can you tell us along those lines? As well as any thoughts on the bigger scary I just mentioned.
2: Well, on a previous expedition to South Georgia Island, uh, you know, I came down with malaria. This was quite a few years ago. But that was a... Um, a rather harrowing experience because who thinks of bringing malaria medication with you when you go to the Antarctic? But I traveled uh, uh, quite quickly from uh, tropical Africa uh, back to California and then packed my bags and went down to... Uh, South America where I boarded a ship bound for South Georgia Island and uh, I didn't realize that I had contracted malaria which has a six week incubation time until I was camping out uh, uh, in a king penguin colony and there I was at my tent and and food for a week while the ship that had delivered me there uh, went around to explore another part of the island and I was by myself for yeah, uh, for nearly a week and that was not a nice experience i almost didn't make it out
0: wow i can't imagine thinking that malaria bugs could survive the sub-zero conditions that's pretty surprising yeah that's a new one on me yeah <laughs> wow you must uh, yeah. you must have a tough fiber in your body to be able to withstand all of that and be in a, all alone doing it <laughs> so, yeah. yeah yeah wonderful and we will mention we are talking with franz lanting famous nature photographer and uh, traveler around the world. And if you'd like to ask him a question, we have about five more minutes of the interview. You can write to us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And um, we can take your calls and questions, not calls. We can take your emails and also chats on the Facebook page if you like. I remember, Franz, you had another story. Maybe you could retell because it was stuck with me all these years. I think it's been 15 years since you told me this. You were uh, photographing lions, I believe, in the Delta somewhere in Africa, and you were in a blind, uh, maybe you were actually photographing wildebeest, but you were in the mud somewhere and they were jumping over your head and you got a really good shot. But the kind of um, discomfort, let's say, you have to endure to get the right shot is something most of us non-photographers probably really don't get. do you remember that, or do they all blend together? All the times you're getting bit by bugs in <laughs> Africa.
2: Yeah, it's <laughs> it's after all these years. There's uh, there's there's quite a few of those experiences. Yeah, I do have to get my feet in the mud, and those images you refer to that I made in um, in Botswana's Okavango Delta can also be seen on our Instagram account. So if you go to Franz Lanting, uh, the the handle franz lanting on instagram you'll be able to see all of these pictures from africa and from antarctica as well in case you can't make it to our show you can still see quite a few of the images on instagram
0: but you won't get the stories behind them and that's why we're so happy you're here today and why it's going to be great for people to hear you tell them in person
1: hey franz i got one for you um let's see well you've been just back from antarctica for a fairly short while i guess. but You can tell us the exact time. But I have a colleague, f- former colleague over at NASA Ames who will probably be on this show. She's an expert on Mars and she's gone to the Antarctic a lot. And one comment she makes coming back is that everything is so green. You know, you've been down in Antarctica and there's nothing but black and white and, you know, maybe red parkas or orange parkas. Mm-hmm. But uh, w- w- maybe you could reflect for us on, yeah, how long has it been since you've been back and are you... Basking in all that green
0: <laughs> In the warm weather we're having. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I know exactly what that feels
2: like. Um, and when I went down to Antarctica to spend time at Emperor Penguins, we uh, we lived on sea ice for uh, more than a month, and you're just sitting in a tent. The temperature is never above. Uh, above the freezing point and I can still remember that sensation when we finally flew back from uh, the continent uh, in a C-130 in a cargo plane and when that plane landed in Chile and the door went open and all these smells of the earth uh, came wafting in and for the first time in more than a month you saw plants That is when you realize how majestic and how precious our living planet is.
0: There is such a small little um, envelope of life around what's pretty much a rock. (laughs) So we (laughs) want to keep keep those living things living. And it needs, the Goldilocks planet really needs not a very big range of temperature to be living. And um, what you're seeing in Antarctica is this extremes of life that where life can exist, but not, as well or as maybe in proliferation as it does on the surface of dirt and other things so you've you've seen penguins that can survive sub-zero you've probably seen also sea creatures that are in abundance up there we haven't really talked about the marine life besides penguins that you've seen but there's been snow leopards those are pretty predatory and large have you had any personal encounters with these creatures that are supposed to stalk humans and in the shackleton exposition did somebody narrowly missed being bit by one that jumped out of the ice and chased him along i think he ended up shooting it but remember that part of the book you didn't read endurance lately
2: yeah, yeah i'm not an underwater photographer so uh...
0: how lucky we are to have you in our midst franz and thank you so much for spending the time with us today on planet watch we so appreciate it well, safe travels to you on your next trip to Antarctica, and thank you for sharing your stories with us today on Planet Watch.
2: It's a pleasure being with you. All
0: right,
1: And welcome home. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Bye. <laughs> well, that kind of makes me want to get on an airplane, kind of, sort of, but I'm a little frightened of really extreme colds. I, I did get to Patagonia and see 500,000 um, small pygmy penguins, and that was enough to last me a lifetime it was quite an amazing experience i'm jealous hmm. because to travel like that for your work is truly what i always wanted to do and until yeah. i had a family <laughs> <laughs> i even brought my son there with me to patagonia one time when he was eight so he'll remember that for life
1: the one the one time i saw penguins was uh, in tasmania australia they have, I think it's the fairy penguins. They're little miniature
0: ones. These sound like donkeys. So imagine 500,000 donkeys braying and nesting under the ground. It was pretty pretty astounding. So Franz Lanting, one of the great treasures of California, and we're lucky to have him living in our neck of the woods, wherever you're listening. We hope you get to see him in person sometimes. So as we do it every... Uh, Last 15 minutes of the show, we like to bring you uh, lore, quizzes, and... um,
1: Oddball stuff.
0: Strange, wacky stuff from the (laughs) science world that maybe you didn't know. So Joe's going to... We're going to let him loose here a little bit. Um, Take the leash off.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Got a few little... Puzzles and quizzes and fun facts and a party fact for the big thing that's about to happen uh, in the world, at least in the United States. Um, But first, okay, a symmetry is an important, uh, profound aspect of the world of science and math. And hey, you know what a palindrome is? (laughs) A palindrome is, you know, just a set of letters, uh, ideally in a word or even a sentence, that uh, are spelled the same forwards as backwards, and I got tons of them, and I'll just do two quick ones for you. Oh, oh, I have one, too. Oops. Oh, okay, (laughs) Rachel's got one, too.
0: I am Um, a potato pan, Otis.
1: I (laughs) am a potato pan... Otis, Otis, O T I S. No, no
0: yeah. oh, Is that right? Is that no, right? Wait, that. I don't think that.
1: I don't think that. Sit that on works. a potato pan, Otis. Oh, sit on a potato Here pan, right. Otis. See, there right. you go. Okay,
0: so <laughs> you can think backwards and forwards. That's really good. And there's the man a plan Panama. <laughs>
1: uh, a man a plan a canal. Panama, I got two things to tell you about that. Apparently, in 1956, that was known as the longest yet discovered palindrome. A man, a plant, a canal, Panama. And I just have to say, since I'm a baseball nut, here's a big football day, but I'm a baseball nut. Used to play a lot of baseball. 1956 should mean a lot to anybody who cares and knows a lot about baseball, namely, it was the year that the only perfect game ever thrown in a World Series happened by the New York Yankees Don Larson it was in 1956. Oh. Well, anyway, okay, so back to palindromes. Uh, now it's Sunday so hey you know we, we should have a sort of religious sounding one so and it's also a nature sounding one. Do geese see God? <laughs> That's a palindrome. Do geese see God?
0: I always wondered that. It kept me up at night. What about you, Tom? <laughs> Tommy? did you know that?
1: I... Yeah, I was you, always wondered. Do
0: you think they do? And, and then
1: uh, and then one last one, <laughs> it means nothing. Well, it means whatever you want to make it mean. It's may a moody baby doom a yam. <laughs> so, you know, the yam like a sweet potato kind of thing. May a moody baby doom a yam. Okay, so there you go. Um, oh, I'll give you one. It'll
0: have to make sense.
1: I'll give you one last one. All the other ones, you have to ignore the spaces, but here's one where even with the spaces included, it's perfectly symmetrical. And you know how you have the shot of a run S-H-A-H. Okay, so it's the plural of that. So it's no evil shahs live on. (laughs) No evil shahs live on. Okay, well, uh, here we go. Now, it's time for this week's Party Fact. You're, about, you're all at parties probably right now. Hopefully, you'll at least hear the archive of this show after the big game is over. Um, it actually doesn't start for another, uh, you know, almost three-quarters of an hour. But anyway, mm-hmm. look, you're probably going to be uncapping a bunch of bottled beverages at various points, you know, soda bottles or beer bottles. Here's a really cool observation to make. You need to be in good light, and you got to look kind of quick. You uncork or uncap, let's say, a beer bottle. In decent lighting, look into the neck right away and what are you going to see? You're going to see fog. You're going to see some fog in the neck every time. What's happening, believe it or not, is that that sudden decompression lowers the temperature in there to minus 40 degrees which causes a cloud to form instantly. Now, you might think, well, is it centigrade or Fahrenheit? Well, just another party fact for you. Minus 40 is the number which is the same in both centigrade and Fahrenheit. So I don't have to say whether it's minus 40C or minus 40F. I have
0: a question. <laughs> if you stick your finger in the top of the bottle while you, right as soon as you open it, will your finger frostbite?
1: Freeze? No, no, no. So <laughs> your finger has so much more thermal mass than that little thin <laughs> condensed vapor there that you just burn it off immediately. But yeah. good question. Good good thinking there.
0: <laughs> Would have been a fun party trick to get your friends to freeze their <laughs> Fingers and and one,
1: one last thing, by the way, about the Super Bowl. Um, everybody's learned Roman numerals all of a sudden. It's Super Bowl LI, you know, 51. Well, look, LI is also the chemical symbol for the third most abundant element in the universe, namely lithium. And, um, you know, have you ever wondered why 50 in Roman numerals is L? I've wondered that, but I think I figured it out. C, as in century, is Roman numeral for a hundred. Like, well, you take a C and draw it and cut the bottom half and it's basically like a rounded L so 50 is half of 100 hence the L for Roman numeral for 50.
0: That's how so, they got it? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I think so. Okay, so, we'll have to
0: check on that. And, and by the way, someday,
1: someday when we start playing clips of music on this show, a local hero here who everybody knows is Tom Lair, the great musician and songwriter. He wrote a whole song about the chemical elements which is outrageous and we...
0: I, I bet you Jason can find it. Jason could it probably on,
1: scramble for that. on
0: YouTube, Tom but, (laughs) Tom L-E-H-E-R, Tom Lehrer, The Elements. Yeah, and so... You'll probably find
1: it. And uh, I got a little, while he's looking for that, I'll give you a little math teaser. Um, Now, I remember my dad asked me that, this one when I was in sixth grade. Uh, And in fact, we were driving up Cadillac Mountain in Maine to see a total eclipse of the sun, which leads into another thing here, by the way, shortly. But uh, he said, okay, a fish weighs 20 pounds plus half its weight. And, of course, I immediately and maybe most of you are immediately going to say, what's its total weight is the the question. A fish weighs 20 pounds plus half its weight. How much does it weigh? Well, I'll just tell you, it's not 30 pounds. (laughs) If that's what you were thinking, it's not 30 pounds. Now, uh, I could leave this as homework for the next session. But why don't you, if if you don't want to be given a hint that's going to really give it away, then close your ears for the next ten seconds. Okay, here we go. Here's the other way of phrasing it: A fish weighs twenty pounds plus the other half of its weight. Hey, I think he's got the Elements song. Maybe.
0: Okay. Uh huh. Which? Part? Should we play it? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, it's
1: it's maybe kind of a long song, but um, you know, uh, uh, two, three, four minutes. I don't know. Let's let's do it. Li- okay, as long as lithium is in Stay there somewhere. <laughs> Thanks, Jason.
0: See if we can get it up on the console. Though. Yeah, was... All right. <laughs>
3: aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, etrobium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium. Elysium lithium there's holmium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and terbium and manganese and mercury molybdenum magnesium dysprosium and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead praseodymium and platinum plutonium palladium promethium potassium polonium and tantalum technetium titanium tellurium and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium there's sulfur californium and fermium berkelium and also mendelevium, einsteinium nobelium and argon kryptonian radon zinc and, and rhodium and chlorine carbon cobalt copper tungsten tin, and sodium these are the only ones of which the news has come to harvard and there may be many others but they haven't been discovered
1: <laughs> hey you know we uh we're lucky to have uh met tom lair he uh, for many years, taught half the year at Harvard, which you mentioned in that song, and the other half the year he w- would teach uh, here in Santa Cruz. And uh, he, I think he still lives here at least part of the time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Did, great. Were those really all elements mandolenium? Really?
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think he snuck one in. I,
1: I, I thought I heard some
0: Didn't you hear a few funny that? ones there. But, um. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a great way, if you have a student of you know chemistry, to get them to memorize it. There is a, a lot about our brain that if you put it in a song... <laughs> then they'll remember it better. So I noticed he took three really big breaths. Mm-hmm. And even then, he looked, sounded like he's about to pass out. Brilliant from Tom yeah, Lair, yeah. our local hero.
1: Quite a tongue twister there.
0: That's right. And, and did you um, get any responses to the people who tried to blow a piece of paper I into a bottle? I did. So, so the funny thing about this, I thought about this. If you're at a party doing that, you're either going to have everybody gathering around you and cheering you on? Are you going to be alone in the corner (laughs) (laughs) while they, like, play karaoke or something?
1: Yeah, we... So uh, what
0: happened with that challenge? Well,
1: I'll just tell you the answer. And, you know, you, you, if you haven't done it yet, now you'll really be challenged to go out and see if I'm lying. But if you take a candle in a nice still room uh, and hold it uh, a little ways away from you with a nice tall flame and put a flat... Knife between you and the candle, not edge on, but face on so that the flat blade of the knife is uh, at right angles to the line between your mouth and the candle. You blow towards the candle flame, but you're blowing at the knife... The candle flame will lean strongly towards you. It will be sucked towards you. What happens is the the air that you're blowing towards the knife, it undergoes what's called flow separation, where you're going to get two whorls, two curls of air that divide at the knife, and they go swirling around, and then they pull the flame back towards you, basically what they do. It's kind of like a handlebar mustache, come to think <laughs> of it. It curls around, and there's a low-pressure zone just behind the knife, between the knife and the candle flame, and the candle flame gets basically pushed by the rest of the atmosphere into that low-pressure zone. <laughs> so, it leans towards you. So, that's pretty
0: cool. Wow. So, if you have answers to some of these quizzes and you'd like to try to work them out on your own, you can write to us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And I was actually referring to the one in the previous show where people blew... Uh, a piece of paper into a bottle.
1: Well, they tried to and never did because <laughs> it can't be done. Okay. <laughs> it cannot.
0: So far, we are batting a 1,000 if you can't do either of those things. But um, maybe we should have prizes so that people feel motivated. If you do have any suggested you know, prizes that you want to win or you'd like to donate a prize for us to give away to some of the people trying these experiments at parties, <clears throat> then please write to us at Yes. Radio your... Planet Watch at gmail.com.
1: Yeah, and I uh, just want to have a quick follow-up on our uh, guests and what they talked about last week, uh, which I think is of absolutely momentous importance if they're really onto something, which I think there's a good chance they are. Namely, pulling vast amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere at a relatively extremely rapid rate. I mean, not yet, but soon maybe, using microbes uh, and making useful products in the process. Um, hey, this doesn't mean, if, if they are going to do this, it doesn't mean, oh, okay, good, we can all relax, we can just be sloppy and burn carbon, continue burning carbon like it's going out, of, like there's no tomorrow, which there may not be precisely because we're burning too much carbon. Mm-hmm. But anyway, can't. Okay, no, 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 we should not be doing that. Um we um, need to be more efficient and, and, and move towards low and no carbon energy sources and infrastructures and practices. So more on all those on future Planet Watch
0: episodes. Thank you, Joe Jordan. And one final thought to leave you with since we were talking about glaciers. Continental glaciers almost completely cover Greenland, parts of Iceland, northern Siberia, and Canada, and most of Antarctica. About how much... How much do you think percentage of fresh water on the planet can be found in the Antarctic ice sheet alone? Tommy, do you want to guess? Oh. How much percentage of our entire fresh water resides there? I'm oh, come on. D- oh. Take a
1: while.
0: 40%. That's low. Joe?
1: How about more like 70
0: that is correct. Oh.
1: If we had chocolate,
0: we'd give you some. So that just about uh, almost wraps it up for us. We want to thank you for listening once again. You can see us on Facebook at Planet Watch Radio. You can write to us at RadioPlanetWatch at gmail.com. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman along with Joe Jordan. Thanks so much. Bye for bye listening. and
1: keep an eye on the sky, folks.
0: Thanks for listening.